Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament in chapter 13. We've been working through a, a series. We've got a few weeks left on it, a couple weeks left after this week, but um, it's called Parables of the Kingdom, looking at what Jesus has to say in his teachings of what the kingdom of heaven is like. We've, uh, we've talked about a lot of different things We've got, again, a couple more weeks, but this is the last of a series of parables in Matthew chapter 13 that kind of build off of one another and show different sides of the, the kingdom that Jesus describes here. We've looked at the parable of the sower, who, among other things, says that even amidst a lot of discouragement, a lot of seed that won't grow up, still we can expect the yield of the good seed that finds good soil to be astounding. We've looked at the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven that talks about the growth of the kingdom being something that will be extensively larger and bigger and covering what we can't even imagine when we see it in its seed form and intensively deeper and, and, and saturating in a way that we can't even imagine. We looked at the parable of the weed and the weeds and learned that growth will occur in a, a mixed field and that, that the wheat will grow up with the weeds and that they won't be separated until the end. And that's what we can expect, that even in the midst of that, we can have confidence and patience that the king is in control and that he's going to set things right in the end. And then last week with Greg Marshall, we looked at the the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price and looked at the idea that the kingdom's worth is it's worth giving up everything to to gain it and so that fills out the picture and most of these parables have been parables of encouragement given to disciples and believers who are looking out at the world that they see and are discouraged and in need of some hope. And yet, today we come to a, a parable, the last one in, a, in this string, and it's, there is some encouragement to find in it, but there's also a very, very stern warning. And so the, thing, the, the, the tide turns just a little bit, the, the atmosphere turns a little bit as Jesus talks to the disciples and tells them this parable about uh, the parable of the dragnet, and it's found in Matthew 13, uh, verse 47. He says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you knew today that a crisis was coming, and it was only a week away or a month away, odds are it would change the way that you think, change the way that you act, change the way that you live on a day-to-day -day basis. What Jesus is telling us in this parable of the dragnet at the end of this string of parables about what the kingdom is like is a warning that, hey, there's something coming that should affect the way you live today. 
There's something coming that should change the way you think, change the way you act, change your outlook on what you should be doing with your day-to-day minutes and hours. And that thing is the judgment. We don't like to think about or talk about the judgment. Uh, It's something that the sermons today that you hear on hell or the end or judgment are few and far between because it's something that we don't don't feel comfortable with. We would rather explain away or or rather not think about because as long as we keep it way out there in the future, then it doesn't affect us today, we think. But Jesus says today that it's coming. The judgment is coming. What, What can we learn from it? And then what does it mean for how we are to act today is, is basically where we're going to go. And the first thing we learn from it is we learn that there's going to be a rescue of the righteous. There is hope. There is encouragement nestled in this short little parable. And, and it is that there will be the rescue of the righteous. Uh, in these days, part of what was taught and thought of with this, at the, of the sea was that the sea was the arena for those that were hostile to God. In Revelation, you read in Revelation 21 that uh, of the, the image that the sea will be no more. And whether he literally means there will be no more sea in the new heavens and new earth is, is up for debate. But what he's trying to communicate is that arena of, of what's hostile to God will be done away with. And so there's a picture here in, in the parable of the dragnet that you're gonna be, a, a net's going to be swept and the way it would work is they had, they'd have corks on one side of the net and weights on the bottom. And they'd throw it out. They'd get a, a boat to take it out. Somebody would stand on shore or in another boat, boat holding and anchoring it down. And then the, the, the ship would just sweep all the way across in a semicircle. And then they'd draw it together. And all the fish that were caught up would be drawn up. And he says the, the, they'd take it then. And, and the good fish would be, would be taken out. Taken out of that, that, that sea, that that arena that was hostile to God and rescued in that sense from the sea. So there's, there's the idea here that's pretty clear of the rescue of the righteous. And, and that gives us hope. We, uh, in a lot of these other parables, have been encouraged by Jesus to be patient. That there's going to be a, a period of growth that's going to be mixed and all uh, confused. And, and, and the, the, the wheat and the weeds are going to grow up together and it's... It's going to be some time before the ultimate judgment comes. And, and he says, be patient, be patient. But as one guy that I was meeting with uh, a couple of years ago that was frustrated with the church that he was in because he didn't see any hope for any change. And I kept saying, hey, man, you're going to be patient. Change takes time. Change takes time. And he, he would look back across the table at me and he'd say, well, patient for what? I've got to know if I'm going to be patient. I've got to know that something's coming that's going to be different than what it is today. See, patience doesn't doesn't mean a whole lot unless we know that, that, that something's coming that's going to be worth it at the end to wait for. And that's what the picture is here is, hey, Christians, hey, those that are committed to Christ, who are, are children of the kingdom, be patient knowing that their rescue is coming. The rescue of the righteous is coming. And there's the other side of justice that is shown here in the rescue of the righteous. We think of judgment and justice as, as the ones that are being put on trial, right? The ones that are being accused. And that's, that's a, 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 a true and right side and, and many times a New Testament side 
of, of judgment, that we are the ones that are guilty to be condemned, and that Jesus Christ stands in our place and takes the judgment that we deserve. And that, that is right and good, and that is what he does for us in the gospel. But there's also another side of justice that's more of an Old Testament understanding of saying, hey, those of us that place our hope in Christ have hope to look that evil is going to be done away with one day. That we're on the, the, the plaintiff's side. That we have wrongs done against us. That we're living in a sin-sick world. And, and we have hope that that judgment, that justice is going to be done. That things are going to be set right in the end. And that is, that is some of the hope that we find in this passage. The rescue of the righteous is certain and it's coming. But the other side of it is what we have a hard time with. And that is the judgment of the evil. It says, when the net was full, the men drew it ashore and sat down, and they sorted the good into containers, but they threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What do we learn about the judgment of the evil? First of all, we learn that it's absolute, that when this day comes, the time for mixture in any form will be done. We're told, hey, the kingdom is like a field full of, of wheat and weeds. It's going to be a mixed bag until the final day. But when this day comes, there will be a separation. The day for mixture will be over. Now we have mixture all the time, even in our own motives, in our own hearts. When we set about to do something good, it's always what? It's mixed with a tinge of motives that are, are not right. We want the glory for ourselves, or we, we have... Ulterior motives that are behind some of these good things that we want to see done. It's always mixed, but one day there's going to be a separation, not only in our own hearts and lives, but ultimately of those who follow Christ and those who don't. He says, then there will be no, uh, no, no ability to be one foot in and one foot out, partially here and partially there. It will be made evident and it will be absolute. Secondly, we learn that the judgment is previously determined, meaning that the grounds of this distinction, of this separation, will already have been laid on earth. In other words, it, it, will, it won't be then that we'll decide. We're deciding today whether we're the righteous ones or the evil ones by what we do. C.S. Lewis talks about it in terms of, of our character. He says it's, it's not just what we do, because what we do is, is, is only a result of what's where our hearts are and where our hearts are dedicated to. And he talks about it in the sense of we have a thousand different decisions every day, every week to make. And by each decision, we're either turning that inward part of us, that character part of us, into more and more a person that, that, that trusts in and follows and, and, and loves Jesus Christ or one that's in rebellion and, and going a different direction than what he's called us to. It's that, that, that character. That's why Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31 that, what you need is a new heart. You need your heart of stone taken out and replaced with a brand new heart. It's not just this outward actions that need to be changed. You've got an inward disposition that, that needs to be totally and radically, surgically removed and changed. And, and the way that happens is by being born again, as the Bible calls it. Giving up your own rights and trusting in Jesus and what he's done for you and getting that new heart. And he's saying that happens now. Not then. It's previously determined. It happens now. So it's absolute. It's previously determined. And thirdly, it's permanent. 
the day of salvation will be past. A lot of times we think of judgment, and one of the reasons we don't like it is because we have this picture in mind that when Jesus comes back to, to execute judgment, that it's going to be a bunch of people that are saying, oh, but I want to follow you too, I want to follow you too. And he says, nope, nope, too late. And, and the picture of the Bible is that's not, that's not it at all. The picture is that even when he comes back, there will be those that still hate him and shake their finger at him in rebellion. That the, the choice has already been made. That's who they are. And that they're not begging now. It's, it's permanent. It's already, it's already happened. And it's too late at that point to change. It's a scary thing. And the last thing, it's not only absolute, it's not only previously determined and permanent, but it's horrible. It is absolutely horrible. It's a judgment of, of suffering. I like what Dr. James Boyce said in, in his commentary on this passage. He says this, he says, Often someone will ask me whether hell has a literal fire. He says, that is the imagery the Bible uses for hell. And then he says this, but I know the Bible well enough to know that it often uses physical imagery to describe things that are beyond our earthbound imaginings. He says, the fires of hell could be like that, but there's nothing here that one should take comfort from. For although the Bible uses imagery to portray the unimaginable, it does so precisely because the reality is unimaginable. That is, the suffering of the wicked in hell is so intense and so terrible, if it is not an actual physical suffering by fire, only such intense physical suffering can be used to describe it. He says, do not banter words with Jesus. The point is that hell involves intense suffering, and a person is a fool who does not try to avoid that suffering at whatever the cost. It's absolute. It's determined now, not then. It's permanent, and it's absolutely horrible. That is the judgment described that is coming when Jesus returns. And if that is the crisis that is coming, then it demands change today. I hear more than ever before in my life, 35 years old, I've never heard people talk in fear the way they talk today it's not only on the street it's in our small groups in our church and everything else it's it's the conversation of choice maybe because it's election time maybe because of the economy maybe who knows all the all the details that go into it but there is a very real fear of coming crisis but in some ways that's good because it starts to help us to think well then if that's true, if there's an end coming sometime, what does that mean for today? Now, I, don't, I have no idea when the end's coming. We're not told. But the point of this parable is that it's coming. So how are we to live? What, the Bible teaches that we serve a God that is a God of love. And yet, we read a passage like this, and we see a God of, of justice, of judgment. How do those two come together? What? Why, how do we reconcile that? Why, how do we take that and, and let it apply to our lives today? Well, let me take you briefly to 
what is probably the verse on the love of God that we know and quote so often. If I asked you to quote John 3.16 today, you could quote it. Can you quote John 3.17 through 21? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. At this point, we're all good. We're happy, right? But it keeps on. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That passage sums up and teaches what these parables of the kingdom have been teaching us. Because it teaches us the character of love. And it says three things, briefly, about love. It says, first of all, true love causes division. You hear what in there? It's, it's in the parables, too, with the wheat and the weeds and all these, all, all these different things we've studied. But you hear it in this passage, even. He says, hey, Christ didn't come to the world to condemn it. But then it follows and it says, but the fact that he came... Some are going to be condemned because they didn't believe in his name. They they came to save them, but they chose darkness instead of light. And we know that in in more everyday things. You know, I have had a friend who's got a client that shared with him that his philosophy of life is to try to get through life with trying to be at peace with men and never make anybody angry. That was his his whole purpose in life was just to try to get, get through life, peace in men, try not to make anybody angry, and then... You know, and then die. And the problem with that is that the only way you can ever do that is to not love anything or anybody. Because if you ever truly love something or somebody, then guess what? Somebody else is not going to love that thing or that person. And it's going to cause division, naturally. If you really give yourself to something in love, a commitment, a committed relationship, then somebody's not going to love that thing as much as you do, and you're going to have to sacrifice for that thing or that person in other areas that's going to make people mad, and it's going to cause division. See, love by its very nature, unless everybody loves the same thing, will cause division. And what this passage teaches us is that everybody doesn't love the same thing, that those who love Jesus will be saved, but that some will choose to love darkness rather than light so love divides and that's what this passage is teaching us but love there's also an aspect of love that involves ownership and you see in this in this uh, john 3 passage where it talks about those that believe in him we think of belief as a um, let me pray the prayer let me know the right things about jesus and say yep i'm on board let me I'll, i'll sign there and that we're good to go But belief in the Bible is so much more than that. Belief involves ownership. It means belief in him, belief through him. It's saying, hey, I don't just believe in this this propositional truth. I believe that in this person and I give myself to him. It's, It's an ownership idea that's involved. And if he owns me, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, I am no longer my own. 
but I belong to him. Um, and so there's this idea of, of if, if love is divisive by nature, I've got to give myself to it, and that's going to mean that, that there's going to be other things that I don't give myself to. Um, then, then there's there's a radical change in where I spend my time and where I spend my energies and my focus on a day to day basis. But then the third thing that talks that it talks about with, with God's love and it applies to what we talked about here even last week is that, our, that love is costly. The passage starts off. For God so loved the world that what? He gave. It cost him something. And the language used there is the same language that you find in Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac. Not just his son. Genesis 22 says that Abraham was called to give up. But his only son whom he loved, the son of promise. And it says it over and over in that passage, and it says it over and over in this passage a couple of times, that this was the only son of God, the son of promise, the only, God's son whom he loved is who he gave. And that leads us back to last week, where we're called to say that the kingdom is something that we're supposed to, to give. It's supposed to cost us something, to own it, to gain it. Now, why would we do that? Why would we want to give ourselves to a person, to a kingdom, that is a God of justice, that would do these things? Well, it's because it cost him something. (laughs) Because he's no stranger to suffering. Because he gave everything that was needed to not incur judgment, but to be saved. The parable of the treasure is... Is something that we, we think of, of, hey, we've got to give up and go purchase it. But think of what God gave up to purchase us. We, having not deserved any of his favor, not looking like any sort of treasure in and of ourselves, were a treasure to God that he sold everything that he had. He gave everything that he had to come here to purchase us as his own. He saw in us a pearl of great prize, and he gave everything to own us. And so the cost to him was great. But now he owns us. (laughs) And there's security in that, that there'll be rescue of the righteous when he returns. And yes, it'll cause division. But when we trust in him, we know on what side of the equation we fall. We know we're in the baskets. We're not the ones thrown away. And so the, the passage today, the parable of the, the dragnet, is one that calls us to reevaluate, man, do I even love God? Do I love Jesus like that? Do I, do I know him? Am I one that is going to be, when the judgment comes, on the right side of God's favor? One that is rescued as the righteous rather than one that is cast away into this judgment. I... Are there any South Carolina Gamecock fans here? All right. You are probably the only two happy people in the room after Saturday. Um, But the best thing that happened on Saturday at the South Carolina-Georgia game was not what happened on the field, and many Georgia fans would say amen to that. But even if you're a South Carolina fan, the best thing that happened on the field wasn't what happened during the ball game. During halftime, 
there was uh, a family, a mom and a teenage daughter and a probably about 11 or 12-year-old son that were honored on the field in halftime. And they were the family of a soldier who's over in, in, at war. And they brought him out, and they uh, were standing with some cheerleaders out there in the field, and they were, you know, saying, hey, this family is given a lot, let's honor them, and all the other families that give up so much to see, you know, the soldiers go and fight for us. And they surprised them on the big screen with a message, video message from, you know, their dad or husband. And he was just, you know, they were, they were crying, he pops up on the screen, and they're crying, and he's just saying, hey, you, you, they say I'm the hero, but y'all are the hero, y'all, kids, y'all had to pick up and move schools at a moment's notice, and Mom, you're sitting there keeping the, the home fires burning while I'm going away. And um, you know, he, uh, he ended up at the very end saying, uh, my tour's almost over, and I can't wait to see you. I'm coming home soon. And uh, it was just a, it was a, sweet, a sweet video. And you thought it was over, and then you hear the announcer say, ladies and gentlemen, introducing. And then out of the tunnel, here comes Dad. And I've never seen a middle-aged lady run so fast in my life just zooming across the field, leaving her two teenage kids behind as they tried to catch up with her. And there, there was a huge just embrace by this dad and just tears all around. And the, the stadium, you know, cheered for him. Um, and I'm sitting there watching it a couple mornings ago at 6 o'clock in the morning before my kids were up, and I'm just boohooing in my, in my living room. And the moment is sweet because you know what it represents. You know, dad's come home. But the more I thought about it, the, the interesting thing about it, you know, in relation to this is that that's, that's what we hope for. That's what our hope is for is the king is coming back. He's coming home. And for us that know him, for the righteous, for those that trust in him, it is a glorious thing that we look forward to. And it'll be just like that situation when he comes. But what's interesting is the rest of that stadium stayed in their seats. They didn't get up and run to him and give him a hug, crying. Why? Because he wasn't their dad. They're, they weren't his family. They actually carried on and actually shoot him out the way so the band could take the field and they could get, get on with halftime. Well, the, the flip side of that joyous reunion that Jesus says is that the, the evil will not go unpunished. Those whose trust is not in him. Those who don't love him because he loved us. Who haven't responded in faith and repentance to place their trust in him. There will be a judgment. And it will be final. It will be absolute. It will be permanent. And it will be horrible. So now, today, is the day of salvation. If you're sitting here today and you don't know him as that. Or you have doubts. Today is the day of salvation for you. Repent from your sin. Turn to him and embrace him and the salvation that he offers. He has not come to condemn. He's come to save. But the fact that he's come faces you and me today with a decision. To live for him and his kingdom and his righteousness and have all these other things added to us. Or to, to live and stand on our own merits before a holy God. And that is a scary thing. Let's pray that God will let that kind of a perspective guide and, and drive our lives today. We pray. God, will you, will you work this in us? We don't stand on our own merits, 
God, because we know we can't measure up. We know our sin, at least in part. And God, our only hope is that you have sent your son to do what we can't do, to live the life that we can't live, to purchase our salvation, and to make it available to us through faith and repentance. And Holy Spirit, we we pray today that all the benefits that Jesus has accomplished for us, you would apply to us as individuals. And if there's somebody here that doesn't know you, that has never had you move on their hearts, we pray you do it today and own them as your own today. And pray for the rest of us that do know you. We would get hope and have patience and be motivated to live for you and to see others come to know you in that way before it's too late. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.